Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. And so I had this gift of being able to make people laugh, and, and the purpose of it, you know, I, I always said, I don't think laughter solves people's problems, but I think it's the release valve that keeps the boiler from exploding. Mm. And, and and you need that laughter as, as a momentary escape from the stress of life. And so if I've been given this gift and my purpose is to provide people that little escape, then I'm actually being not a good steward of that gift if I don't put in the work. Hot breath. Welcome back to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I am your host, comedian, and founder of Hot Breath Comedy Network, Joel Byers, here to officially welcome you to what we call the Hot breath averse What started as a podcast to interview my fellow comedian friends five years ago has quickly grown into an international comedy community with over 300 interviews online writing courses, a private membership group we call Hot Breath Pro, a daily writing club on our YouTube channel, and so, so much more, all on the mission to cultivate the next generation of great comics. And today's guest is one of, if not the greatest, in the history of comedy. Such a groundbreaker, not only on stage, but also off when it comes to the business side. And out of the 300 plus interviews we have done on this show, this one took the longest to book and it was well worth the wait. I've been on Jeff's radar for a little over four years now. We've crossed paths a few times and I finally got him wrangled in here. And what was so amazing about this interview was how nice he was and how apologetic he was before the show and after about how long it took to actually book this interview. And I was like, I would, I would wait 10 years. I would wait my entire career to make this interview happen. But it just shows that someone at his level, why he's there. And it's because he is so grateful for where he's at and he's so kind and so giving which you'll hear in this episode as he answers young comic questions, which is what we're all about here at Hot Breath. So I'm excited to have you aboard here. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. There are plenty of other interviews for you to go enjoy after this. And now there's only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath with Jeff. Foxworthy. Ah, Foxworthy. I, I was looking around to see who you were going to have on the show with an intro like that. Oh, even even at the even at your level, you still have that mindset of like, I'm just a comic. Is that is that it? Yeah. Wow. I, I, I mean, really? Yeah. It's uh, it's it, it's what I do, and I'm not really qualified to do a whole lot of other things, and so. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I honestly have the thought all the time, crap, I can't believe I got away with this for this long. Um, and still happy to be here. So, yeah. Yeah. What, what is it about 
comics that you love so much because you've I mean, I've I've seen you do live Q&A's with comics here in Atlanta and like you really seem to enjoy giving back and helping like fellow comics on the on the up and like the underdogs. You know, what is it about comics? You know, um, I've always said and I I do a show on Sirius uh, called Comic Mind. And the first question I always ask people is, are you born funny or is it a skill set you can acquire? But honestly, I believe you're born this way and Mm. I I believe it's a gift. And and some of us, it takes longer to discover it than others. But you can't teach some you can teach somebody to be a better writer. I can teach somebody how to shape their set better. But I can't teach somebody how to be funny. Either you're funny or you're not funny. And so but but we're a little bit weird. Uh, you, you know, we don't we 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 often don't excel in school uh, because we just got to get that comment in. We're a little bit bold if you think about it, because other people probably have the thoughts we have, but they don't have the cojones or whatever to blurt it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're a little bit weird and different. And so when you meet somebody, you know, it's like the lizard going through the forest and then he sees <laughs> another one that looks like him. He's like, dude, you yeah. know, so that's kind of how I am with comics. It was like, there's an unspoken thing. It's like, yeah, you get it. You know what it's like. Who were some of your early mentors? Well, you can't politically correctly say it now, but obviously Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a shame what he did socially just nullified all of his professional work because Bill was an amazing stand-up. Just just a great storyteller. I was always fascinated that he – he could be clean and uh, just still be funny. Um, Bob Newhart made me laugh with the one-sided conversations. You know, I used to watch Pat Paulson and Flip Wilson. Then I graduated to Carlin and Richard Pryor and, um, you know, used to watch Dangerfield. I remember being a kid and, and peeking out of my bedroom. My parents would watch The Tonight Show and I didn't care about the actors and I didn't care about the musicians, but if there was a comedian on, I just wanted to watch them. So I was fascinated with it from an early, early age. I, I would buy comedy records and just memorize them in a day, you know, go to school, do them and obviously get in trouble. But, I, I, you know, so this thing was in my DNA. Yeah. And even those early struggles of being a comedian, like... Uh, you know, you're doing 400 shows and making like eight grand and things like that. Like that early reality. We're seeing you now, but there's a lot of newer comics that watch this and listen to it. Like what was your early like struggle like? I, well, it was hard to get stage time. You know, you know, I worked at IBM for about five years and, and only got into stand up because a bunch of guys I worked with entered me in a contest at the punchline in Atlanta. Um I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I went and watched one week before the contest started and uh, went home and wrote five minutes about my family. Um, and I won, you know, that preliminary round the first night I was ever on stage. And, and I knew, I knew a minute and a half into it, I'm like, 
holy crap, this is this is what I want to do. I was scared to death, but I, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And so then it was going up every, I mean, I'd work all day and then I'd go up any place, amateur night somewhere, you know, bar with their Wednesday night, comedy night. It was just trying to get stage time. Um, and I did that for about three or four months and I quit my job at IBM and, and got out on the road and I did, honestly had no clue what I was doing, you know, and, and I tell people often the way you learn to be a comic is you hang around with comics because mm. then somebody tells you, Oh, so-and-so has a gig on the weekends. Here's his phone number. Or, uh, and that's how you learn to, to, to write. And you find a group of, uh, of friends that, you know, you kind of share the same, um, it's kind of like us with a blue collar comedy tour. We all met in the first year or two of when we were doing comedy. We now we didn't work together all the time, but we just met and we found the same kind of things funny. So I think, you know, 20 years later, when we came back together and did it, that's why it worked. Uh, or 15 years later, uh, because we found the same kind of things funny. We just approached them from a different way. Um, but yeah, man, I, the first year I'd, I'd have the little notebook calendar, pocket notebooks. I did 406 shows, made $8,300. <laughs> I think the next year I had eight years in a row. I did over 500 shows. Wow. So I was going on stage every night. I mean, some places, some nights, two and three places. Uh, the next year I did over 500 shows and I think I jumped to like 11 or $12,000 that year. But you know, in, 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 in the rear view mirror, looking back at it, I, I think, God, it sounds egotistical to say good, but I think that's how I got good was I was doing it every night. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go home, I mean, or go back to the comedy condo or the motel or whatever it was and sit there and, you know, go, this didn't work, this work, you need to build this up. And, and so I had a work ethic about it. And when I look back, most of the people that were successful, they worked at it. They, mm. didn't, they, you know, they weren't the ones. I mean, there were some people that were just naturally funny, chasing the waitresses all over the place. But, but the people that long term did well, they worked at it. It was their job and it was important to them. And, and, and so I always kind of approached it this way. It was like, crap, I don't want to be opening forever. I got to, I got to get better. I got to get better. And then when I started middling, I'm like, all right, I got to get better. I'll, I'll do my time, but I want to make the headliner's life a living hell. I want the headliner going to the club owner going, I don't want to follow that guy anymore. That, you know? And so, yeah. What is, I always ask comics on here, like their worst, like, like worst show they'll never forget. I remember Cedric the Entertainer was talking about getting booed in front of Steve Harvey one time on here. Of like, what is what is one of those gigs or some of the gigs that you've had over your career where you're just like, man, this is where you're really earning your stripes, like getting booed or something thrown at you or anything like that. I did a, I did a a gig like in '85, I think it was a some, somebody's company Christmas party, and it was. <laughs> and it was I did a couple of those. That were I've horrible. done those. Yeah, they were paying me. They were Joel. They were paying me fifty bucks, so I really <laughs> needed the money. And it was in like an old disco, so it was like a it had an octagonal dance floor, and it it went up. It was open, like three levels up, 
And so I get there and there's just people eating hors d'oeuvres and drinking it on. In the middle of the dance floor, they had a place where you plugged a mic cord into the mic deck into the floor. And so, but the mic cord they had was like four feet long. And so if you took the tension out of the mic cord, the thing would go, (laughs) just feedback like hell. And the guy walks out there and he never gets anybody's attention. It's just like in the middle of a party. He goes, Mm -hmm. all right, y'all. We got a comedian for you. And he's like, you know, hands the thing. So I'm out there in the middle of the floor and I realize, I'm like, hey, everybody, my name's Jeff. You know, the thing's feeding back. And nobody's listening. I mean, they're just talking or, you know, nobody's, I'm, I'm, and so I'm doing this and I thought, this is awful. Not one person is listening to me but I'm doing my time, you know, I'm doing my 20 minutes cause I want that 50 bucks. And somewhere about five minutes into it, there were some drunk guys on the third level that started dipping their napkins in their beer and they were leaning out over the rail and trying to hit me in the head. So now I'm contending with a mic cord that's feeding back. And it's like, so uh, yeah, by the time I got to the store and picked up a carton of milk, you know, and, then here comes splat, you know, splat. <laughs> There's these napkins hitting the floor. And and I'm like, this is awful. So when I get, I do my 20, I get to the end, set the mic down on the dance for you. Thank you, everybody. You've been great. Thank you. Not one person clapped. I had, I think they had no idea I had finished. And I walk off and I go to the guy in charge. And I'm, I mean, like your soul's ripped out, you mm-hmm. know, you've, and, and I said, dude, can I just get my money and go home? And he goes, dude, I'm sorry, because we we don't have any money. I'm sorry. I don't know who set that up. And I said, okay. I mean, I didn't even argue with him about it. And I just walked out. And so, yeah, the horrible gig and no money for the horrible gig. <laughs> How long but, into your career was that? That's about a year in. So About a year in. Mm-hmm. And it, it took you five years to get on Carson. Yeah. And like where, how, how important is mindset of a comedian? Because that is even like Carson is something you had been hearing. All right. It takes you like 10 years to get on Carson and then you get it in five years. And even like, um, people wouldn't film blue collar for instance, or your book got turned down by 14 publishers. It's like, how important is that mindset and that resiliency in comedy even as someone at your level, one of the highest achieving comics that even you had to basically like forge your own path the whole way. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And, and I do think it's, it's extremely important and you have, I mean, it's funny. Every, every time I would run into Richard Bells or one night I was early, I mean, I've probably been doing comedy for three or four years and I'm in New York one night doing a set at catch a rising star and Richard Bells are, pulls me out of the lobby onto the sidewalk. And he's like, look, he goes, I'm not telling you how to run your business. He goes, those redneck jokes are stupid. (laughs) You need to stop doing those. They're just stupid. And so, you know, for the next two decades, every time I would see him, he'd go, pretty good advice I gave you about the redneck (laughs) jokes, right? So, uh, but, but, but so in that case, instinctually, I knew, hey, they may not be, the greatest thing in the middle of Manhattan, but I knew instinctually that they resonated with a big group of people. So I, I think a lot of comedy is 
being a comic, you're trusting your instincts all day. Because mm. you don't you don't know there's not a you know, if if you work for a corporation, there's a career path. And it's if you do this, then then you move up to here. And then if you do this, and 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 in the in the creative world, which comedy is is creative as anything. There is none of that. I mean, I remember asking older comics, what do I do? How do, do I, how do I do a book? How do I get somebody to, to film me to do a special? And, and, and you get, hell, dude, I don't know. I'm trying to do it myself. I don't know. Um, so you are trusting your instincts a, a, a lot of the time. Um, See, I've already forgotten the question now. But oh, yeah, it's important. Just like the mindset of a comic with you being turned down so many times, but still that resiliency is like, do you attribute that to so much success you've had? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I, I mean, I do, you know, and it's, I mean, and I'm a nice guy. I'm a, I'm a really nice guy. But mm -hmm. but when it came to stand-up, I'd I'd be nice to you all day long. And I would do my time, but like when I was middling, I wanted to make your life a living hell. I would cram 45 minutes into 30. I, I mean, so there was a determination and a mindset there that, because I knew I had to get better. I knew I was in the middle of a comedy boom, but I knew it wouldn't last forever. And when it did, comics were going to be calling all over the country saying, Hey, you don't know me, but I'm, and, and I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to call and go, Hey, remember I, I was there six months ago. I need to get back. And so I made myself go out of my comfort zones. I didn't just stay in the South. I made myself go to the Northwest and I made myself, you know, go to Chicago being the dumbass Southern guy. And so, but I knew I had to get better. And so I, yeah, I was very determined about it. I had kind of a, an attack mindset about it, I guess. Mm. And when it comes to the business side, you, you gave us a good context for how you were able to sharpen the skill, which I think is most important. Like I've been doing comedy 10 years. I didn't even really think about selling myself until maybe seven or eight years when I felt like I had something worth selling. You know, because like you can get booked once, but the rebook is when you really start to get the traction and the money. Sure. So get that first opportunity. It may be your last if you're not ready. And <laughs> well, and, and, and you know, Joel, it's 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 show business and everybody loves the show. Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of people that don't approach it as a business. So it's like when you're going into a new club don't be screwing up, you know, don't be an ass. Do your time, you know, keep the condo or whatever. Don't, cause you want to come, this is your business. You are an entrepreneur and your business is only going to succeed to the level that you put into it, whether it's your act, whether it's your conduct off stage, um, whatever it is, because they have, thousands of people to choose from. So what do you want to do to make them go? That's who I want. I want her. I want him to come back mm -hmm. as opposed to all of these other people. And, and so, yeah, everybody loves the show part. The show part's great, 
But the business part is what enables you to still be doing this 10 and 20 and 30 years down the road. And, and hell, once I got a taste of it, I'm like, I don't want to go back and sit in a cubicle. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the, this is the business I want to be in. What, what kind of business tips do you have for us comics? Um, you know, Marshall Childs at Laughing Skull in Atlanta says, says something. I love it. He says, you, you need to spend time with your material. And I've been doing comedy 35 years when he said that to me. And I thought, crap, that's such great advice because the difference sometimes in a joke being okay or good or great is just a word or two Mm -hmm. or it's, and and some of my favorite nights in comedy was sitting there just really as an observer in the back room at the comedy magic club in Hermosa beach, listening to Leno and Seinfeld and Shanling argue about the structure of a sentence within a joke. And I was just sitting there watching this going, if the audience could see this, they would be flabbergasted to know this much thought goes into the construction of a sentence, you know, of Jay going, no, it should be blue. And Jerry's like, no, Jay, green's funnier, green, Green," you know, and (laughs) and I'm like, it sounds like crazy people, but I still do that. Like last, I'm, I'm working on a new game. I, I wrote 140 punchlines last night. Whoa. And then I and then I sat there and went back through them like moving words or cutting a word or, I mean, there's, there's a fine line sometimes between a good joke and a great joke. Mm. And, and so, and nobody else is gonna do it for you. Again, this is your business. So, Put in that time, be intimate with your material. You know, think about, and it's and it's hard, but think about the way the audience perceives you, not your material, but you. Because if they don't like you or buy into your point of view, then the material becomes secondary. They just like, I don't like him. I don't like her. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of behind the scenes thing. I mean, to me, it's kind of like I've got a buddy that plays football at the University of Georgia. He said, hell, game days, that's the fun part of the week for us. It's, you know, the practice, hell, games are fun. The, the, the practice is what kills you. Well, to me, by the time I walk out on stage, that's the fun time. But because of all the work that went into it before I walked out on stage. What, what is your writing process and has it evolved over time or has it kind of been the same throughout? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's evolved. I have, uh-huh. uh, oh my gosh. Please. Yes. Yeah, share it all. I, well, all right. So I just, I'm sitting here in my office. I, I have, that's the first handful and there's probably seven other handfuls of notebooks just like that. Wow. That's just that's just notebooks. That doesn't include all the scrap sheets of paper. And then, all right, so like right here, this is this is the stack. Of, these are on note cards. That's the stack I wrote last night. Uh, the, oh, those my and gosh. Um, so it's kind of evolved from notebooks to cards and, and then into the computer. And, and it's like as I write something, I usually will write it out long form, just 
just as as I'm thinking it and in a notebook and then I'll take it from that and I'll put it on a note card usually editing some as I go and then I'll take it from the note card and I'll put it into the computer you know the last time and may change one or two things like that hell I I, I sometimes I'll be sitting in there and I'll just pull out an old notebook and I'll be flipping through it and go crap that's funny why didn't I ever use that you know why didn't I do something for that so um but, it, you know, my kids laugh at me because I still write longhand. But I will tell you, comics listening, here's the advantage of longhand. And I know we live in an age where it's all computers and phones. But I was, I, I was reading an article where uh, neurologists say that if you write something with your hand, actually write it out, that you have a 70% better chance of memorizing it and remembering it than if you type it into a phone or a computer. There's something about the action of your brain telling your hand to, hey, print this word out or, or, or whatever that makes you remember. And there's something, I don't know why I have the ability to do this, but as I write it, then later when I'm on stage, I can almost see that page in my head. Mm-hmm. Like years and years ago, I did a, a joke about uh, about the side effects of medical products, that the side effects were 50 times worse than whatever the drug was supposed to cure. And so I sat down and I t- took a notebook and I just wrote two pages of side effects. And it was, uh, you know, water weight gain, lower back pain, receding hairline, eczema, seborrhea, it's in shaving clothing, liver spots, blood clots, roomworm, excessive body odor, uneven tire wear. But as I'm doing this, list on stage and it's you know 50 side effects i i'm just reading it i can see that piece of paper in my mind and i'm just reading right down the piece of paper so people are like crap how do you remember all that it's like hmm. i wrote it down you know i can see it hmm. uh, so if you have trouble remembering your stuff on stage try that take try whether it's note cards or note writing it physically writing it out because neurologists say your brain holds on to it better that way so you'll like write longhand first almost like free writing and then read through that and pick what may be funny and you take it and put it on a note card you kind of start to distill it down that way yeah i mean i'll kind of free form it and then i'll go back and read it a couple you know and i'll scratch this line out or put an arrow and go i need to move this here and it'll it changes uh you know, it's, I think in the early days when I was on stage every night, I used to imagine it like I would ha- have a premise, you know, four, four jokes and go out and try them. And three of the jokes worked or two of them worked good. One worked OK and one didn't work. So the next night, get rid of the one that didn't work. You know, see if you can change the one that kind of worked. Keep the two and then add two more. And so night after night after night, it was like adding little pieces of clay to something and cutting the ones off that didn't work, but adding more. And over the course of a month, you could create, you know, a new 10 minute bit out of the thing mm-hmm. just by. But now I'm not on stage every night and it's well, now I'm not on stage ever. I know. Uh, <sighs> You're right. We don't even want to discuss that. But, <laughs> but in, in a normal year, not 2020. So I'm just no. on stage on the weekends. And so instead of building it piece by piece, I would now I tend more to glob it and then go through it and just start cutting out. Um, and it probably takes the same 
amount of time to, to, to build a, a, a bid, but yeah, I'll free form it. Then I'll just start cutting away or go, I don't like this. Or you go try something one weekend and it doesn't work well and go, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter if I think it's funny or not. The audience doesn't think it's funny. So get rid of it. Um, and yeah, so now I kind of maybe work opposite, but it's kind of the same thing. It's, uh, you know, it's clay adding and cutting away and adding mm -hmm. and cutting away. And I appreciate what you said about if the audience didn't find it funny, get rid of it. We can hold on to these precious ideas, but if what is what is the response? <laughs> Editing well, can be so difficult. I think that's a great point. Uh, and as comics, we're hard-headed. Mm -hmm. You know, you, here's what I used to say: if if the if the only people in the room laughing are the other comics get rid of it, you know, cause we laugh at shit. Nobody else laughs at, uh, um, but I mean, to this day, and I mean, you've watched me work on new stuff. I will have things. I'll put it on a note card and I think, boy, this is funny. And you throw it out there and you get nothing. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter what you think. The audience is always right. And it may be, Hey, maybe I didn't set it up right. Maybe I didn't present it right. What, whatever. But the audience is right. Hey, that's not funny. And I don't, comics are like that. We will hold on to something <laughs> that, that it, it doesn't get a laugh. And I'm like, why? You know, you've only got a certain amount of minutes, you know, holding that precious microphone. Don't waste it on something you're being hard headed about, but they don't respond to find, you know, chunk it find something else how do you deal with writer's block or trying to generate new ideas all the time um i mean golly man i've been through periods in my life where i thought i'm never gonna write anything else i mean mm. just couldn't it, it, it in, in crazily because i started in 84 so this is my 36th year um I, I get writer's block less now than I did even 15, 20 years ago. Um, but like writing these punchline cards last night, I'm sitting there with my wife and she's watching TV, but as she's gotten a little older, she puts the closed caption on so she can read. And, the, and it was a show set in Ireland. So she's watching closed caption. And literally as I'm watching, I'm just reading the closed caption, reading words you know, and a word might be confused, you know, and I'm sitting there going, what's a, what's a joke I can do with confused? And it's, uh, so it's just like little pings to inspire me. I think it's great to have one or two other comics mm. that as you have these ideas that you can, and, and you get stuck, that, that, that you can go to these other people and go, hey, is there anything funny in this idea? Uh, I have a buddy, Scott Dunn, who lives in Nashville that we just write well together. And, you know, there's times that I'll go to Scott and say, is there anything funny in this? He's, eh, I don't, yeah, I mean, he's honest. Or he'll go, yeah, that's, that's a good premise. Let's see what we can do with it. And, you know, so I'll write jokes and I'll send them to him and, and he's like, I don't like this part, but I think you're on the right track here. And so find somebody that that you can that you can write with. Mm -hmm. Writing stuff, that's all we are. We're writers. 
people always ask me, do, do you practice in front of a mirror? I said, I've never practiced performing anything. And performing is just instinctual to me. If I'm the kid in the grocery store aisle and I, and I throw myself in the floor and spin around, that's not something I practice. It just <laughs> kind of just happened. But the words leading up to that, that's the hard part. I saw 25 years ago, Steve Martin won an award for writing. And he said out of everything that he had won, you know, Academy Awards or Golden Globe, he said, this is the most precious award to me because writing is hard. Wow. Right. And, and, and it is. You have to make yourself do it. Mm-hmm. You and, and the blank page or the blank computer screen scares the crap out of all of us. And so... You know, nobody wakes up going, boy, I want to write. But once you start, once you get that first sentence in, or at least I can only speak to me, once I begin, then it just kind of comes. I mean. It's one of my favorite quotes from Christopher Titus. He says, I hate writing, but love having written. That's, that's, that is perfect. Yeah. That is is right. And I will tell you, you'll never find a great, comedian that's not a great writer Mm. Mm. so you want to be a great comedian you better work on your writing yeah yes and on the other side the the business side as well i do we're about to start taking some questions but i've i had to jump in with some of mine first and i i would be remiss to not dive into at least your business sense and i think it was Larry, I heard an interview with Larry, the cable guy talking about how you helped him with branding and just thinking in comedy in those terms. Um, what, what kind of, cause it's like the redneck jokes. It was like five minutes of a two hour show that now ended up becoming this empire. So like what, what kind of branding tips do you have for comics? Well, you know, we're all, we're, we're all unique. Um, I, I'm such a visual guy, but I always used to say, it's like when you used to go to the mall at Christmas time and you just drive up and down the aisles. I said, you're looking for the empty parking place. That was always been my business approach. I'm looking for the space that nobody's in. Um, and so, you know, it's like a couple of years ago, I'll give you a great example. So uh, a couple of years ago, Thanksgiving, Every year at Thanksgiving, we have like 30 relatives at my farm. We have, we've been doing it forever. All the cousins, grandmothers, moms, dads. And so the, the kids, and I say kids, they're in their 20s now. But so Thanksgiving night, they're sitting around the big table and one of them pulls out Cards Against Humanity and they start playing Cards Against Humanity, which is hilarious, but it's also filthy. You know, it's mm-hmm. just dirty as it can be. And I went over to him and I said, you, your grandmother's here, your aunts and uncles are here. You can't play this at this table. You can play it, but, you know, go somewhere else because, and, and I sat back down and I thought, well, crap. And what makes Cards Against Humanity is there's no strategy. You're just doing it. It's funny. And so I thought, well, there's got to be a way to do this funny that the grandma doesn't have to leave the room and the aunts and uncles don't have to leave the room. And so I go in my office and I pull out a stack of note cards and I start thinking, all right, so what, what's a game you could play that would be funny? And uh, I, everybody's got a family. That's why we're here at Thanksgiving as a family. Everybody's family's crazy. So what if all I, my skill set is punchlines and setups. So I wrote a hundred 
setups involving relatives. Jeez. And it was like, you know, right before we walked down the aisle, daddy leaned over to me and whispered blank. So that would be a setup. And then I wrote 500 punchlines. Took me like the next two days. <laughs> and, then, and then I had them all, all the aunts and uncles and cousins sit down at the table and play the game on stupid note cards. And they were, and I'm filming it and they're laughing. And I'm like, crap, there's something here because there's, there's games of strategy or whatever. But to me, if you play a game and it makes you laugh, you'll play it again. Mm -hmm. Well, Then relative insanity ended up being like the number one game on Amazon because it was just, so that was a, that was a looking wow. for that empty, looking for that empty parking space is mm -hmm. there had to be a funny game. There was a funny game. Cards Against Humanity is really fun, but the empty space was your grandma and your aunts and uncles couldn't play it because it was too dirty. And so it's looking to go, where's a, where's a niche that nobody is in. And it can be in a podcast. It can be in a game. It can be in a book. You know, it can be in a TV show. There's all kinds of empty spaces, but you know, don't try to do what somebody else is doing. Make it yours. You're unique. You, you know, find, be, be true to, and I tell comics that don't try to, you be true to your voice, you be true to your sensibilities, but look for those open spaces. What's somebody else not doing that you can pull in there and do? And would it also be kind of like um, thinking of like the, the kings of comedy are working, but there's not that for this demographic. So is it also kind of like Cards Against Humanity has this audience, but not this audience? Were you thinking the same thing with like Blue Collar? Oh, yeah. The, one of the first stops of the Kings of Comedy, which was a tremendous comedy tour, but it was Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading an article about it in the paper, and it said this is a show for the urban hip audience. And I called Bill Ingvall and I said, Look, these guys are killing it for the urban hip audience, but that's leaving a lot of people out because there's a. I've been all over. I've been to every state. There's a lot of people that aren't urban and they're not hip. Mm -hmm. And I said we need to do a show for them. And he laughed. He said, "What would you call it?" I'm like, "Hell, I don't know. Call it the Blue Collar Comedy Tour." And um, and so again, it's like you said. I mean there was an open space. There was mm -hmm. nobody had done a group of four people going after, you know, middle-class America. And we were going to do it for three months. And I think we did the first tour for three years. We had no idea it was going to work. Oh like my that. gosh. But, uh, it's, it's, it's almost overwhelming just to think about the amount that you'd be able to accomplish all seemingly like just authentically and organically. It seems like the whole time, I think a lot of comics, we feel like there's like a system to this, to where we have to follow A, B, and C and get this right agent and this manager and get seen at this show to get our success. But I, and I may be assuming, but it seems like you've just been putting in the work and through that and being a nice person along the way. And that's brought a lot of opportunity. Am I, am I wrong in assuming that? Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, I like to think I'm a nice person. Uh, maybe somebody doesn't agree with that. Oh, I don't. <laughs> but, but yeah, there is. But, you know, Joel, there's not a yes. Does it do you good to get seen by somebody? Yeah. But that's not the only path to do that. Mm -hmm. um, 
There's, there's no corporate handbook. That's, that's why it's called creative. And so if the normal ways don't work, it's our, we're, we're the creative ones. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the canvas is blank. It was like, how do you, how do you do this? You know, I know people that couldn't get it going in comedy that sat down and wrote a one man show and, you know, Rob Becker did that and made a fortune traveling the country with defending the caveman. And, and I'm like, man, that was so smart. That was, you know, couldn't separate from the pack in the comedy club. So do it from another way. And so I think it's on us to be creative. To, will it work to get seen by an agent? Yeah, maybe. But, the, but there's also a ton of people out there that have an agent that hate their agent because their agent never gets them anything. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so we, we've all, it's, we're fighting for ourselves. Awesome. Perfect. Well, I've, I've been fighting for a lot of this time, so we will, <laughs> we will now um, get some of the, the hot brethren and sisters questions. And I do want to candidly say my, my, my mouse has been frozen for like 10 minutes. So like this whole time I'm like trying to fix the mouse so I can scroll over to look at questions of people. So uh, I swear everyone, I'm not, I'm not trying to hog your questions. I've literally been having technical difficulties for 10 minutes and I just slammed it on the desk hard enough to fix it. <laughs> See, you were creative. You found See? another way to do it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we'll try to, and thank, thanks for everyone tuning in. We are at about 95 right now, people watching. So this is great. And probably primarily all comics, Jeff. So Ooh, awesome. Let's, um, let's try to do some rapid fire here. Uh, people skipped work for this. People like, <laughs> like oh I'm serious. People, as soon as I announced it this morning, one, uh, one lady messaged me like, well, I was going to start homeschooling today, but the kids can wait. <laughs> so so yeah, we're, um, we're really working to like create that next generation. Great comics in here. We do a weekly writing club. We do these Q and A's. We do writer's rooms. Like we're, we're really trying to make something special here. So we appreciate being a part of it. Let's see, because there are some writing questions. Then uh, we covered a lot of the writing questions. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, this Theodore asks, um, what methods did you use to establish slash grow your following, especially outside of rural America? Uh, you know, I don't... I don't know that I had a message, but, but what I was, was I, I think I was true to myself. I, I know when mm. I first started going to New York, the advice that I would get was people would pull me aside and go, yo, Jeff, you got to take voice lessons. You got to lose that stupid accent. You got. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, where I come from, you have a stupid accent. But, but my thought was, and again, it was just instinct. I'm like, well, at least a quarter of the country talks like I do. Mm -hmm. So why would I try, you know, why would I cover that up? So, you know, I, I, I wasn't hip, I wasn't sophisticated. And, and so I just talked about the things that I knew about in my real voice. And I kind of stayed true to myself, but I wasn't, I wanted to do it in a way, you know, Leno was so good. And you talk about passing the baton. Leno has been as good to young comics as anybody ever. I remember, you know, one night in LA getting to meet Buddy Hackett and uh, Milton Berle and a whole bunch of people. Uh, 
and somebody took a picture of it, and Buddy Hackett sent me the picture, and it said, to Jeff, grab the baton, meaning you're the next generation. You know, we're in the relay race. You take the baton now. And so when I sit here and do something like this, I'm like sticking it back going, all right, come on, grab the baton. You run with it next. I've gotten to run with it for a long time. You run with it. Wow. Um, and um, so it's important to me to, to feed back into it. But, you know, I, I, I think I was just true to myself. But Leno, I know what I got off point. Leno said, we're sitting there at a Waffle House one night at, you know, one in the morning. And, and Leno says, if you work clean, you'll always work. And so I'm going, well, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, you know, you can't do the Tonight Show and be dirty. You can't be, you can't do corporate shows and be dirty. Well, hell, I saw Jay last year and, and I brought that up and he, he goes, pretty good advice. Well, it worked out all right, didn't it? <laughs> And, and so, and I'm not saying that for everybody. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't care if you work blue or not. I don't get offended. But for me, I thought if I can be funny and I don't have to be blue, it, it widens the amount of people that can listen to me. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and, and I would say this in front of Ron, Ron, Ron White, I think is the most naturally funny human being I've ever met in my life. Um, but Ron's show, my mom wouldn't go see Ron. My aunt and uncle wouldn't go see Ron because he's too dirty live. Well, I look at that and go, all right, what if I could be, what if I could do it in a way that's still funny, but they could come. And so again, it, you know, Joel is probably more of a business approach to it from, from my angle. Awesome. Yeah, sounds like Jay would be a, a good guest on here. Jay would be a fabulous guest. If, if you're a comic out there listening, one of my, on on Sirius, uh, that the show that that I do, a comic mind, I got to talk to Jay for an hour and a half, and it's funny for a for a younger generation that never knew Jay as a stand up comic and just knew him as the host of the Tonight Show. You would have one impression about him. I don't think I've ever seen a comedian destroy a comedy club any more than Jay Leno. Mm. Back, back in Jay Leno's prime I, I don't know that anybody was ever better at stand-up than Leno. i think I, I feel like i've heard uh seinfeld say that as well i mean just destroy a room just destroy <laughs> like snot on the table wiping <laughs> your eyes destroy a room oh there, there's a few, there's a few comics asking about uh, finding your voice. How, how did you able to? How were you able to find your voice, and how long did it take? Mm, yeah, and I guess by that you mean the kind of things that I wanted to talk about, or yeah, maybe you your persona, and yeah, that it feeds into what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, I remember being at, uh, sitting there one night. Uh, at the improv in LA and, and Stephen Wright was really big then. And, you know, Steve was very slow and monotone, mm -hmm. but, but so funny. And, and I just thought he was so funny. And I remember saying, man, I don't know whether I should be fast or whether I should be slow or, and, and Seinfeld said, I think you just do it every night. And after 10 years, you have a style. And I'm like, well, I don't know about that, it, but, but Jerry was right in that, in that, like when we did the first blue collar comedy, uh, 
movie. I had a joke in there. Uh, I was talking about a wood burning kit, and, and I would say, uh, it's just something about the back in the old days, people would inspect the toys to make sure there was no way a child could possibly get hurt, hurt using that, using that thing. And, and when I watched it, I thought, hell, I didn't realize I did that to hit that one word and go up. Uh-huh. And, and, and I don't, I hate to watch myself or listen to myself, but now I noticed there I, that somehow through just doing it, that I do that, that there's a, you know, there's a, I will hit certain words or pause a certain way. And it's, it's not a calculated thing. It's just kind of how I've learned to tell a story, I guess. So it's something you kind of noticed that got a response and then you started to almost incorporate it more into your performance. Yeah. I would think that's probably, you know, like, uh, like, uh, I was talking to Bob Newhart one time and I said, I said, you know what you can do, Bob, that I'm so jealous about is you can make people laugh without saying anything. You could just that pause. And he said, well, I stole that from Jack Benny. You know, Jack Benny, you know, the guy's your money or your life. And Benny you know, has to pause to oh, think about it. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, yeah, I think I think we do learn that. It's, you learn as you're on stage working out. Oh, shoot. Sometimes if I take a pause people start laughing or if, or if I get manic, they start laughing or whatever it is within your thing. And I think over time, that's how your style develops. You know, I'm sure it was that way with Kennison screaming. I mean, I, I don't, it probably wasn't a planned thing just one night and people started bursting and he went, Oh, that could actually become a punchline that, and yeah, that's how your style develops. Mm. So this is a good one about offstage, like balancing your life. This is from uh, Michelle Van Dusen. She asks if you still do your Tuesday morning Bible group, and if so, how do you balance touring, staying committed to them, and like you know, she says balancing your faith and career and your family. How? Yeah, what is that balancing act? Um, well, I, unfortunately, I, I haven't been able to do it this year because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've had, yeah, since February, the Tuesday morning thing hadn't gone on for the, as the Atlanta mission uh, for homeless guys. But, you know, Michelle, I, I guess I would say it's it's the way you prioritize, prioritize your life. Mm. Um, and I always go back to several years ago, somebody was interviewing me about something and the lady said, she said, okay, you write books you paint and you draw, you host game shows, you do stand-up, you act, which one are you? And I said, well, those are all things I do, and I love what I do. I I'm, I feel like I'm the most blessed guy in the world because I made a fabulous living doing something. I, I would have done it for free. I, I mean, I, I would have. That's how much I enjoy it. But I said, those are things I do. It's It's not who I am. Who I am is I'm a husband and I'm a dad and I'm a son and I'm a brother and I'm a person of this community and I'm a child of God. That's who I am. So what I do may change many, many times, but who I am hopefully stays consistent across that thing. Mm -hmm. Like one year 
like I would, you know, I would, I was lucky. I had the financial resources because of success that I could do shows. And then I, I would lease a little private plane and I would fly home and I'd get home at two in the morning. And I'd take my kids to school. I did that for 15 years. I'd fly to St. Louis, do a show, fly back to Atlanta, get there at two in the morning, get up at six and take my kids to school. And then that next day, fly to Minneapolis. I mean, that was just my life. Wow. But I grew up without a dad. My dad left. And so for my kids, more important than my career, I didn't want my kid. Because when your parent's not there, you just feel like you're not worth sticking around for. And I'm like, all right, no matter what I do for a living, I never want my kids to feel that way. And so they were the priority. So I just found a way to work, you know, around them. I, I, I learned, you know, my dad was married six times. I, I saw the destruction that left behind. And, you know, so when I was on the road, I was like, I'm not going out to the clubs. I'm not hanging out at the bar. I'm finishing the show and I'm going back to my hotel room and order room service. And be, because I wanted my kids to grow up with a mom and dad that loved each other and lived together. So I was a husband and I was a father and but and so I'm so thankful that I've able, been able to be a comedian, but I would have taken much less success as a comedian to be a good dad or to be a good husband. They were the priority. Yeah, and that requires a lot of worth work ethic, which Matthew Airby is saying uh, to quote the great Ron White, quoting you as saying, I'm not the funniest comic, but no other comic will outwork me. What what does that mean to you, Jeff? Ah, uh, you know, I mean, it's whatever your skill set is, you know, I mean, Ron, Ron could recap his day and you'd be laughing so hard. And it, I mean, it's like he hadn't even put in thought into writing it down. Or he's just, well, you're not going to believe what happened to me this afternoon. And, and you know, it, it doesn't work that way for me, but but I knew I could be successful with it. It works a good thing. I mean, ba a balanced life is a good thing, mm. but uh, yeah, you don't want to work too much and you don't want to work too little, but, and so it's, it's, it's finding that balance, but work is good for us because I, I think we're all born with, with a gift and with that gift becomes our purpose. And, and so I had this gift of being able to make people laugh and, and the purpose of it, you know, I, I always said, I don't think laughter solves people's problems, but I think it's the release valve that keeps the boiler from exploding. Mm. And, and, and you need that laughter as, as a momentary escape from the stress of life. And so if I've been given this gift and my purpose is to provide people that little escape, then I'm actually being not a good steward of that gift if I don't put in the work. Uh, some people's gift is taking care of old people. Some people's gift is, you know, carving up meat. Some people's gift, I mean, it doesn't matter what your gift is. When, when you don't put in the work to be good at that and, and honor that gift, then you're not living up to the purpose that you're here for. Mm. so let's get <laughs> we got a little celestial there i'm sorry no no it's beautiful no we like we like covering all the bases here at hot <laughs> breath i'm just uh want to get uh she's posed this question a few times and i think it's i think this will be a good one in terms of 
in on the same track as finding your voice or finding material that's unique to you. And this is Robin Sutton Clark. Um, basically, her persona is a hot piece of white treasure trash. Is like she she has like trailer jokes and things like that. And um, it's seemingly like the it's a it's like a paragraph. But I think the gist of the question is basically like, how can I create my own unique material about her life and like, like I guess more of like redneck life, but without like feeling like she's stealing from you. Oh, I don't think you know. I don't ever look at it that way. Is stealing from me? You know, the whole redneck thing was it was a formula. It, it was one-liners in an age kind of where nobody did one-liners, mm-hmm. but. But, but it was also talking about a subject that I I didn't have to research. It was my freaking relatives. You know, <laughs> yeah. if you have a complete set of salad bowls and they all say Cool Whip on the side, that's my sister. You go, <laughs> you go to her house right now, there's Cool Whip bowls and jelly glasses in the counter. Uh, so, you know, in a case like that, I, would, I wouldn't worry about that because... If this is your life, if this is the thing you know about, then that's that's the lane you need to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you may sit there as you write with it, and I do this sometimes when I get stuck. Is is I will try to put like, like, like oh my god, I think on the second album I did, I did a whole bit about the Clampets go to Maui, and it was about me taking my relatives. On vacation, which I did. I took everybody in my family to Hawaii. So, as I'm, and, and I, there were some things that they actually did that are part of the thing. But I also put in there, all right, write down everything you can think about about Hawaii on one side of the thing. So it was like hula dances, grass skirts, coconut bras. Right? And then on the other side, I would say, what what did my relatives do? They steal stuff. They yell stuff out. They and and that was able to like write a joke. I said, one night we went to a luau and, you know, my uncle got up to do the hula dance and we all realized halfway through the dance, he's not wearing any underwear underneath his hula skirt. (laughs) Well, that was just taking column one and column B and just crisscrossing and go, how can I? So in the case of the white trash trailer girl, you know, think of different scenarios, put her in LA, put her in New York, put her in a department store and then list the department store and then list the the traits. And that's where it starts getting fun and funny. And, you know, that whole thing, I, I, I think Ron thinks that, or Larry, Larry's the one that thinks the Clampets go to Maui is the, one of the funniest things I've ever written. Um, but yeah, when you get stuck, that's a great little writing thing is, you know, I remember doing a a routine about men cleaning up the house and how we have to get credit for every little thing we do when we clean up the house. And, but I was stuck. And so I wrote everything, traits of men. And then what do you do when you clean the house? You vacuum, you dust, you wash dishes. And then what do men do? We, you know, and, and, and just start crisscrossing them and looking and going, can I connect that to that? Can I connect that to that? And, and that is a beautiful way to plow material right there. Um, wow. It works. It, it worked 30 years ago. It still works. Yeah. And how do you, how do you um, start to shape your hours? Cause I know you're, you're preparing for a Netflix special or mm-hmm. you were at least um, 
Like, how do you then start to? <laughs> oh, that hurts, Joe. Oh, like, dude, hurts. I haven't been on stage since March. I'm like, I'm like fiending for it. So, yeah. It's, oh yeah, it's like, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a new, a new era for sure. But um, a lot of people are asking about how you have all these great jokes, but then how do you start to shape it into like an hour long set? Um, I actually sat down and this is the scariest thing after all these years, this is still scary for me to get to the point where, and I've done it six or seven times in the course of my career where I go, all right, I'm not doing any of this stuff anymore. And I'm starting from scratch, which to, to, to have, an hour and a half that's getting a standing ovation and to go, I'm not doing it anymore. Uh, and I'm going to start from scratch. It's just terrifying. What, because you know how much work you're going to have. You know, you're right back to the 20 people in the club on Monday night with a handful of note cards going, is this funny? Is this funny? Um, so like in create, but I did that again, trying to create this Netflix special uh, and you know it's going to be painful. You know it's going to be hurt. But there's not there's not a shortcut to it. There's if there was an easier way to do it, I, I would find it. But there's just not. And so, you know, like in the case like that, I had um, two or three different subjects I thought that I wanted to talk about. And so I was kind of writing towards them. And I will say that's one thing that's changed. And that's the beauty of reaching the point in your career where you have an hour and a half to play with as opposed to six minutes mm -hmm. is obviously the bits have gotten longer. Uh, so, you know, what was, you know, five years into doing comedy, a long bit would have been an eight minute bit. Now it might be a 30 minute bit. Um, and, and so over the course of trying to shape this thing, it changed several times. And I mean, there was one area that I really felt like I wanted to talk about that I couldn't make work. I just couldn't make it work. But there was kind of a secondary offshoot off of another thing I wanted to talk about. And I went, oh, that's funny. And so, you know, for this new hour and a half, it's probably three subjects, four tops. Mm. Um, so, and, and I'll look at that and go, oh, that's kind of weird. I wouldn't have, back in the old day, I wouldn't have written you know, a 30 minute, three 30 minute bits, but it's just the way it worked out. That's why I've heard Chris Rock say that too, is he basically talks about the three same things and just breaks up his set into like chunks on each of those subjects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I mean, that's a luxury because you've got the big length of time to be up there to do that. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, even say you're doing a, a, a six minute set, you're picking your best jokes, even if they're not necessarily all related to each other or, but, but having a longer amount of time gives you more time to expand on things and, and kind of dig deeper, you know, and I always tell comics that another writing tip that the part, the setup is necessary. You cannot do it without the setup. Did I lose you? Oh, I'm here. No. I can't see you. Uh, oh, you can't? Um, can you see me? I can see you. You look okay, great. Just, I can I'll, see that I'll mustache in all its glory. Um, but you have to do the setup. and But once you've put in that work, the setup's not getting you a laugh. It's the setup. 
once you get the punchline, it, it drives me crazy to see a comic that will do a long setup and get a laugh and then move on to another setup. And I'm like, crap, you've put in the work. Now that you're, you've got it set up, instead of getting one laugh, really go look at this thing and say, you know, is, are there two laughs here? Are there three laughs here? Are there four laughs here? Because you've set it up, you know? Hmm. And, and so learn to dig deep, you know, the Turport's critical thinking, thinking to the next level and the next level and the next level. And, but, and that's how bits grow longer. So if you've got a funny premise, and it gets a good laugh and you then start thinking, all right, can I stay here a minute? Is there, is, is, is there more to dig out of this hole? Um, and, and that's how a funny joke turns into a bit, turns into, holy cow, have you heard her 15 minute bit on the grocery store or whatever? Yeah. So yeah, man, be conscious as you're writing. All right, I've, I've done the work, I've set the joke up. Are there more laughs that that I can get while I'm at this spot? How do you find those laughs? Is it asking questions? Is it looking for funny analogies? Yeah, what do you do to find those laughs? I mean, sometimes sometimes it's analogies. Again, you know, like for me, I might write the word down, like you know, anything. The kid in the grocery store, and then I start, you know, again, I'll go, "What do kids do in a grocery store?" What, you know, they grab stuff off the shelf. They beg for stuff. They, you know, they, and, and so I'll just start writing that down and, 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 and just seeing, all right, how, if I can take this, I got a funny joke about this, but can I get two more jokes? Can I get three more jokes out of this? And now I've got a whole bit. I don't want to just have a joke. I got a whole bit about this. Mm-hmm. And, but for me, that's what works is I just write it down on a piece of paper and I'm like, just, Everything associated with it. Our, our analogy is great too, but, um, or here's what kids do. Here's what is in a grocery store. Make two columns and just start trying to connect the, the lines. Um, but that's how you get to be a more expansive writer. And, and, and jokes turn into stories, which is really cool too. Awesome. Well, this, this has been really cool, Jeff. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, yeah, this is amazing. People, yeah, people are, now people are making mustache comments now that <laughs> I used to have a mustache and, um, I, I hosted for Louis Anderson super early in my career on a bonkers gig. Great gig. And it was, um, I had a mustache and he was like, I used to have a mustache. He's like, do you want to be known as a, a comedian or you want to be known as a comedian with a mustache? And then, like, the next show I did after his, right when I walked out, I just heard someone yell, mustache. And I was like, wait, maybe this is a sign to shave it. I didn't realize. But, like, it was like a bizarre moment of, like, me hearing Louie Anderson say this. And then the next show, it's like an example of someone yelling mustache at me. I was like, oh, maybe I should shave it. But yours, staying strong. I don't, I, you know, I, the, when COVID started, I, I've been married 35 years. My wife had never seen me without it. And so I actually shaved it off. Uh, I, and I didn't tell anybody. I just went in and shaved it off. And <laughs> I walked out and she looked at me and she goes, oh, wow. All right, grow it back. Uh, so, <laughs> so she's seen me one time without a mustache. Mm-hmm. But now you're making me think I don't want to be known as the comedian with a mustache. You but know, you're now. not. No, you're Jeff Foxworthy. 
No, no, not at all. I was just saying you you were able to like surpass that. Like for me as a newer comic, all they see is mustache, and they're like, yeah. "Oh, mustache." And then wait, what was his name? But yeah. I mean, no, you, yeah, you're you're by no means a mustache then comedian. You're a comedian. You're a father. You're a son of God, and then maybe a mustache. And we'll then maybe a mustache. <laughs> It was so funny when I shaved it off, my daughter took a picture of me, put it on Instagram and people were like, no, 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 no. You are supposed to have a mustache. So I'm like, all right, I'll grow it back. Well, I, I know you're about to actually go um, interview Colin Quinn on your show, which is amazing on Sirius. Um, if, if you guys love Hot Breath, you'll love his Sirius show. It's it's We're right of the same comedy ilk there. Um, do you, We always end these with uh, two things. The first one is, what is your favorite closing advice? Like, for comics, what is the best advice you ever heard or advice that you could bestow upon this next generation of great comics? Um, you know, it, 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 it's probably a little bit of what I said before, but mm -hmm. but if but if you have this gift, you, you obviously have, if you're watching this, you, you've got this thing in your heart that comedy makes you sing but it, but if you've been given this gift it's it's an honor to have this gift um and you become a steward of this gift and so use it well use it use it wisely don't take it for granted it's you know i i after all these years i look back and i go there's nothing else i would have rather done for a living Mm -hmm. nothing else and you know i'm not alone in that you look at look at how much money seinfeld has or leno has well and they're still out there doing stand-up i mean you, if you're a comic you're a comic it's you're a comic because you can't help i mean that's that's who you are so just honor this thing and you know it's uh, i growing up a country boy i bought a farm about an hour south of atlanta and i always thought you know I never looked at it and thought I own this. What I think is I've been given stewardship of this for just a little while. And it's my job to leave it better than I found it for the next person. And so like for me to even do this show, the, my heart in it is, is, is I want all of you watching to be great comics. And I want for you 20 30 years from now to be doing somebody else's show for the next generation, because it's, it, it is a gift and it's a valuable gift. And you look at, you know, the world right now, especially like this year, the, the thing that's missing is laughter. We've lost the ability to laugh at ourselves. We just yell at each other and, and, and the medicine for a lot of the, the animosity and, and hatred that's going on right now is to just, I mean, we're all, we're all screw ups. We're all screwed up. We're all doing the best we can to get by. So have grace with people. Mm -hmm. Hey, you don't know what their struggle is, but learn to laugh at yourself. Now you don't get, when you have to be right, that means somebody else has to be wrong and people get tired of being wrong and they walk away. Mm. So give up your right to be right. Just be kind, be funny, and and use this gift that you've been given. Whew. Be kind, be funny, hot breath verse. 
And uh, <laughs> the, the final thing here, if you don't mind looking into the camera and just letting people know who you are and why they should listen to Hot Breath. Uh, this is Jeff Foxworthy, uh, comedian, and a bunch of other stuff. And the reason you should listen to Hot Breath is four out of fin. Dead <laughs> Boo! Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I always, I always take pride in being one take, Jake. Uh, I am comedian Jeff Foxworthy, and you should listen to Hot Breath because four out of five dentists will assure you it gives you stronger, brighter teeth. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Foxworthy, everyone. Give it up for Jeff Foxworthy one time. Absolutely amazing. Jeff, thank you for sharing your time. Um, yes, we're going to get out of your hot breath of verse. Jeff is going to go prepare for his his show now. So is there anything you want to promote, Jeff, before we get out of here? Mm, no, no. I've got to promote y'all to just go out there and write. Go write, 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 write. Beautiful. Right, yeah. right, 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 and be kind, Hot Breath of Verse. We'll see you on the next Q&A. There you go, hot brethren and sistren. Thank you so much for supporting our mission of cultivating the next generation of great comics. If you want to get more involved in our mission, you can join our online comedy writing course, our private membership group, Hot Breath Pro, and so much more, including a daily writing club on our YouTube channel. All you got to do is go into the show description, Pick what's best for you, and we'll see you on the other side. Next Monday, we have a brand new podcast with another very special guest. But until then, I always end these by thanking my wife. She made the theme song, and she made me. Aww. And we all make each other here in this hot breath of verse better at comedy together. So go forth. Tell your fellow comedians about us. Tell your fellow comedy fans about us. And we'll see you right here next Monday, only on Hot Breath. Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.